What is crackalacking, fellow thermonuclear AFers? I am Dan Valley coming at you with my certified fantabulous co-host, Grant Hughes. Part two of our mailbag. It's back. It's been a couple weeks. It was on hiatus, but the mailbag is back. We have a bunch of other fantastic questions to get through. Before we get started, the usual reminder to continue subscribing to us wherever you get your podcast. If you're on YouTube, hit the subscribe button, like, comment, help the algorithm roll us back. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to the audio version of this podcast. Helps a ton. Reviews are great, too. Anything that can help drum us up up the, the Apple charts or something to, to really inflate our, our fragile egos. Follow us on all the socials at Hardwood Knox on Twitter and TikTok at Hardwood underscore Knox on Instagram. And join our Discord. The link to that is in the podcast and YouTube description. Always a fun time in there. Uh, just a great community where where people are always having discussions. So come be a part of it. Grant, before we count a ball into this mailbag, the one question that we know for sure everyone wants to know the answer to, because we mm-hmm. talked about it at the top of the last mailbag. How are you doing? As was the case last time, um, I'm doing great. I, I feel like the mailbags, they give us, they give us and they give me strength. You know, they give us uh lighter lifts we don't have to come up with topics which is always nice so i'm in a good i'm in a good place how are you dan i never respond by asking how you are and that's really bad form by me so i'm gonna start doing that i'm elated that you care even the slightest bit about my well-being that's how i'm feeling it only took me like 50 pods to ask you how you are doing so pretty good um let's let's belly flop let's not even dive let's belly flop mm-hmm. into into this mailbag so the first question we'll start off with is for you t bloom 117 asks what percent chance would you give this current net squad to make it as far or farther than the best kd nets team which was the second round of the playoffs also what is mikhail's mikhail bridges ceiling on offense can he be the number one guy in a contending team these two questions are inextricably linked, <laughs> right? Because once he is the number one option, no. I, so the first one, I mean, if we're just talking about this year, which I, I it's the current net squad, I guess. And like going forward, it'll probably change a lot. So uh, to get into the second round, like, what are we talking? I mean, 20%. I mean, it seems pretty high even there. Cause if you, if you look at the nets now, they're the fifth seed, I guess they have a decent chance of holding on to that. They're going to get Cleveland in the first round as a road team. I like Cleveland a lot more in that series. I don't really see another matchup that's super favorable. Like if they're way too far from three to maybe draw the Heat or the Knicks in a three-six, so uh, real low. Uh, that, but that's kind of not the point. That you trade Kevin Durant, you're not uh, expecting to make it as far as you did when you had Kevin Durant. So. Uh, that's that. Do you disagree? Like, is there, is 20% too high? I just don't, I don't see the pathway for the, for the Nets to win a playoff series. No, I don't see it this season. I mean, they would have to just, everyone catches fire or Mikhail Bridges would have to be this just authentic number one option and continues to hit all these off the dribble, dribble jumpers. But even then it's just, I guess between him, Cam Thomas and Spencer Dinwiddie, do you have enough playoff from scratch creation to beat you know, let's just say whether it's the Heat or the Cavs or someone else, like they could, they're only three losses ahead of the Knicks, right? I was like, they could drop out of top six territory. Yeah, which I feel bad saying there's almost no realistic chance because I like, I think we both like the Nets. I think we like, you know, how many good players are on the roster. It's just not a team that's like, you know, they didn't want to be in this position. This was not the plan. They, they just got what they could get when they could get it and they're going to, make do for the rest of the year so but to get to bridges because that's kind of the more i don't know certainly will be the more interesting angle for them the rest of the year than you know what their playoff seat is in my opinion um 
so you got to kind of start with the the fact that Bridges had already really expanded his game with the Suns prior to coming to Brooklyn. Um, and it had been kind of gradual. Like I know you and I had talked, you know, several times about, oh my God, he's got like a two dribble pull up now. And that, that wasn't there before. That was a couple of years ago. And now it's, you know, just to get the the numbers out there, he's running about 2.3 plays as the pick and roll ball handler per game. Last year, that was 0.6, you know, so he's just, his volume as like a guy who is tasked with making a decision with the basketball is, you know, much, much higher. Um, you can look at like percentage of his field goals that have been assisted 59.8% this year. That's by far the lowest of his career. And in Brooklyn, tiny sample, but only one out of three of his field goals have been assisted. So he's generating offense by himself to a much, you know, much larger extent than ever before, but he's 26. Um, his efficiency in terms of true shooting percentage is, is way down this year relative. It's still fine. It's 57%. But he was a guy that was, you know, 62, 66, 60, the three years prior to this one. So if you're looking for let's add more volume to a guy that's averaging 17 a game, um, I don't think there are a lot of signs that you could do that without losing even more efficiency. I think it's impressive that he can do what he's done, He's that he has leveled up the way he has. But given his age, given the sort of cost that we're seeing in terms of efficiency, that goes with him doing more with the ball. Um, I think there's probably not a lot of, there's not a ton of room for him to expand. I think he'll get better because um, he's gotten better. And that's always a safe bet for someone that, you know, if they've improved some, you, you know, it's reasonable to say they work hard enough or they understand the areas that need to be addressed in order to improve more. But number one option on a good team, like just, that's just not, that's just not what he is. And that's not what I think he's going to be. Would you think that he could be number two on a good team? Maybe, maybe. I think, but so just to, if if these were his numbers, you know, we're 17.2 per game, uh, 57, just, you know, slightly above average true shooting on like 23% usage, I think, 24% usage. That's probably not quite good enough, right? I think you need, you'd need him to be up over 20 points, 58, 59 true shooting, Um for that for to be a number two on like a on a really good team, I, th- I think that that feels like the bar to me. And maybe he gets there, but I I'm not super optimistic. He has a ton more than he's shown so far. I would agree with you, but I also wonder if we're encumbered by the context of his role in Phoenix to where yeah. yes, we saw him branch out, especially during the Devin Booker groin injury. But now there's just no like pecking order in Brooklyn mm-hmm. at the moment. And so is this a case of if you put him in it? Like think of Julius Randle going to New York is that you thrust him into this situation. Even then, Julius Randle probably showing more on-ball uh, you know, versatility maybe than Bridges to that point. But I'm just saying like this is the role he's never been in. The Nets are this different infrastructure, and everything might start funneling through him. If not this season, then potentially next season, uh, looking at what they might do with their roster. And I'm, I wonder if we're, or at least myself, am constrained by not being able to imagine him branching out even further, just because we we haven't seen it. Like he's never just run a team. Like he's mm-hmm. run sets, and so if they decide to make him. Oh, we're gonna have him run a team. Are we looking at someone who's just like offensively the next Chris Middleton or something for some reason? I, like on the ball, I don't, I don't know. I would guess no, but I think it's he's at least shown enough to where if I were the Nets, I would plumb the hell out of his on ball depths. Yeah, I think for sure that is that should be. I mean, maybe priority one. 
right the rest of the way just because you don't really have a reason not to and you sort of know what spencer dinwiddie can do you have a rough idea of most of the other guys on i mean maybe cam johnson even is someone you should probably kind of stretch and push to see you know one are we going to pay this guy what it costs in free agency to keep him but two does he does he have it um yeah i i yeah, it feels like I'm being negative about Bridges. He's like, I think both of, for both of us, he's one of our favorite like non-superstar players in the league. So I, I just, it's a big ask to be a number one option or even a number two, really. And, and he's so good at so many other things that make him fit everywhere that it's like, we're really, we need him to do this too. I mean, that's- I thought that was tough is that they just decided to trade him for four first round picks this offseason. I don't think that yeah. they should just because there's not really an incentive for them to bottom out, but that's, he could end up in a completely different situation before the start of next year. Yeah, agree. Uh, okay, let's let's move off bridges. The, this is this is for you. This is from Rhett Bauer. It's kind of a two parter here. So real quick, <laughs> how are you how are you feeling about our disagreement like a year ago regarding me taking Orlando's future over New Orleans ten out of ten times? Are you still on Team New Orleans, or you like Orlando's future better? No, I'm still Team New Orleans. I just you have Zion Williamson. And we don't know if Paolo Bancaro or Franz Wagner, whoever they drafted this pick, is ever going to reach what we know can be Zion's top end outcome. And you still just have safety valves floating around and Trey Murphy and Dyson Daniels, all these inbound Lakers picks, plus the established talent of Brandon Ingram of CJ McCollum. So there are just more avenues, I think, for them to get to a sustainable level of title contention. If you pick Orlando at this point, I think you just have to firmly believe Zion's injuries are always going to be an issue and always going to repress New Orleans' ceiling, which I think is a fair belief, but to pick mm-hmm. New Orleans 10 times out of 10 times in a head-to-head rebuild matchup versus Orlando, I'm not there yet, and I'm yeah. very high on Orlando's rebuild. We should probably do an episode where we rank like the futures of, of every team, but would you take Orlando over New Orleans at this point? 10 probably, out of 10 times? No, probably not. I mean, I think Orlando is the risk-averse person's pick because I think probably Orlando's median outcome over the next five years, you know, if you simulated it a thousand times might be higher than new Orleans, just because the downside is, is like substantial. If Zion just never is healthy, then, then you're a nice team with all these, you know, young players and assets and Brandon Ingram, but you're not, you know, you're, you're, you're just pricing in that downside, I guess is what I'm saying. Scares me. The other thing though, too, is like, I think Orlando's pretty close after this year to kind of not, having uh as many paths to get better it's certainly through the draft because they're going to start winning more games whereas new orleans still has the lakers stuff they have you know just totally this guy and like dyson daniel types uh, dyson daniel so like orlando yeah bancaro wagner carter like those guys are all really good and probably good enough now to where the draft upside is too low um but you know I, that who knows who knows right like things can go sideways and i just think generally new orleans ceiling is higher but i do understand if you're just like which team it might have the most playoff berths in the next you know x years orlando's not a crazy pick but the 10 out of 10 times thing is, is tough uh, but so it's also from Rhett. um which team is going to look the most different next year after basically standing pat this deadline some of the examples he gives and you could add to this if you want you know, the Wizards, the Bulls, the Heat, Pacers, Grizzlies, Pelicans, Kings, Wolves, Hornets. Like, which of those is going to make their changes in the offseason, if if you see any of them, you know, doing something substantial? 
It kind of feel, I, a lot of this. So what's tough with some of these teams is I think, and I'll use the Wolves as an example. I still think a lot of it just depends on well, how is this season going to end? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like if it's just a complete Conley Towns comes back, and it's just a complete no show in the playoffs as a team, they're going to start looking at the nuclear move, which is to shop Carl Anthony Towns. Um, I don't really know with like Memphis. I don't, they're just not a nuclear team. So I wouldn't pick them. I don't know why Sacramento would look drastically different after breaking their playoff streak. I gravitate towards and, and um, Charlotte's listed here. I don't know what they changed. Like it's okay. Maybe you let PJ Washington walk, but like, what is it? What are you doing? That's super meaningfully different by blowing up your roster. I I'm, I'm drawn towards Chicago or Washington, but that takes a level of trust in those front offices to really like they're going fucking nowhere. Yeah. And I don't know if I have that trust in any of those teams. I think I would just lean towards, I, I think I would lean towards Chicago just because it feels like DeMar DeRozan going into his final year. There was already the Zach Levine stuff. Um, Caruso, another year will have ticked off his deer. Nikola Vucevic is a free agent. They're at a more natural crossroads than a lot of these other teams on the list. Uh, and it would be a lot more in character, but it just feels like the combustibility factors there more for them. So I think I would go with Chicago here. I will say the dark horse pick might just be Miami if they yeah. suck in the playoffs and Jimmy Butler all of a sudden agitates for out. But you have Jimmy Butler, Tyler Hero, Bam Adebayo, and you could still trade a bunch of first-round picks. It just feels like anything they do will be more of that singular home run swing, which is what I feel like Sacramento or even um, New Orleans if they're going to change anything, maybe even Memphis you throw in there, that's what they'll do rather than sort of shaking the foundation of the roster by making multiple moves. They will go all in on a singular transaction. Yeah. I think I would hope that the wizards and bulls, those are the first two look different. Just we're, we're of the same mind. Like it's, it's past time to do it. It may be like too late. It's certainly in Washington's case. Um, Cause they're just going to pay maybe Kuzma and Porzingis to stay. And then this is just your team forever. Um, but Miami was going to be my pick. I mean, it's partly partly because, like, they have guys that actually play that are going to be free eight. Like, Struess, Gabe Vincent, yeah. Victor Oladipo has the player option that he, like, could reasonably decline. So that's three guys that are in the rotation and then some that have started at times that, you know, who knows. But then, really, the main thing is Miami, of all these teams, is the one that has shown the willingness to be, like, we will make take that home run swing. Like, we are going to have some picks available. We're going to try to find – someone that you know gives us another big name you know between next to hero butler out of bio miami is just the team that like does stuff when things aren't going great the rest of these teams i think uh inter- i mean you don't want to lump memphis and new orleans in there necessarily but and sacramento has been prone to doing crazy stuff but these are a lot of teams that kind of just are more have historically been okay kind of hanging around the middle so drastic change doesn't really tend to come with that kind of thing. But yeah, the Heat the heat don't like being pretty good. It doesn't seem like. They, I think they want more than that. The next question is, uh, I'll give you this one. Jake G123, I've been having this discussion a lot, but would Houston be the worst place for Wemby to end up? It feels to me that they have no direction. They're just throwing darts, hoping something hits. I mean, I'd like to say we've already, you know, I'd like to say nice things about Houston, but it just sort of seems like the, like the sort of lawless outpost of the NBA right now, where it's like, you know, there's just not enough adults in the room on the roster. The style of play is just chaos. They lead the league in turnovers. They just have all year. Um, 
it's just their guard play. It's, it's a tough spot because they let really young players like Jalen Green and Kevin Porter make a lot of the decisions and they're just not good at that yet. So the offense is kind of a mess. Um, Steven Silas, I think I've written, you know, recently, I think it's pretty clear he's lost the team and that may or may not be his fault, but that is kind of an irreversible position to be in. So, um, yeah, I don't want Wimbanyama winding up there, even though you could make the case that no team needs like an organizing, like, okay, this is our guy. This is our direction. This is our identity more than they do. Um, but I just, if I'm invested in his future, I don't want him playing in an offense that doesn't seem to like have any structure and playing with guards that are not going to make him better. Um, and potentially playing, who knows what, who the next coach is going to be. I think we both assume Silas will be gone because uh, he'll be a lame duck next year otherwise. So uh, I think it's pretty clearly the worst place to be, but are we being like, is it fair that the Spurs are worse by point differential than the Rockets by a significant margin this year? Is it fair that we kind of just give the Spurs a pass that, you know, we're leaning on how good and functional and, you know, cutting edge and whatever they were for 20 years. And that's not really been the case the last several, like, is it, should, do they deserve like a little bit of a nod as, you know, maybe they should be in there too. I don't know, just because I feel like my biggest criticism is it took them too long to get where they are now. And are you unhappy with the development of Keldon Johnson, Devin Vassell, Malachi Branham, Jeremy Sowen? No, I'm um, just being a devil's advocate. <laughs> I, so my pick, I'm just wondering, is like, does Charlotte deserve some blowback here? Or is it just, no. oh, he plays with LaMelo and that would be great. And the other team is just like, why would you trust Detroit at this point? Because they're so hell-bent on playing with two bigs that it's just weird. And I don't trust the vision of the roster under Troy Weaver. When they've just decided that, hey, wings don't matter, apparently, which is weird a little bit. And so when Minyama comes in and could, I guess, play a multitude of positions, but those are two teams that I would have. I agree with Houston, but I almost wonder if, if Charlotte or Detroit is the actual answer because Detroit just feels like it's veering into 80 different unimpressive directions at once yeah I, I think my my reaction would be I think Charlotte like actually deserves Wembenyama the least just because right. of the way like the position it has put itself in you know they didn't really want to tank they didn't realize that they weren't that good and, and they have almost like lucked into it with injury and and like even the Miles Bridges stuff like honestly they would be a better team if he had actually played this year um so and I just feel like Charlotte would be the most likely team to sort of squander him. Although him and LaMelo together would be a lot of fun. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's Houston. I, I just, I don't, I mean, I don't really have a, a strong second place contender there. Um, do you want to do an Evan Mobley question or distant first round picks question next? Oh, hit me with the Evan Mobley question. All right. So this is from Muckle. Uh, what are your, here it is. What are your thoughts on year two Evan Mobley? Uh, he took a lot of heat the first half of the season because it seemed like maybe he didn't quite make the leap that was expected. I know we, you and I have talked about him before on that exact topic, but he's already an elite defensive player. Uh, he's learning to play offense with Mitchell, which is, you know, he's a high usage guy. Um, so basically is, is his, where is his development to you? Is it ahead of schedule? Is it where you expected it? What have you seen from him that you like, didn't like, want to see more just the Evan Mobley update basically. It's ahead of schedule in the sense that I was just not high enough on him coming out of the draft, but using last year as a baseline, I think it's probably where it needs to be, but the offense all of a sudden does feel like it's ahead of schedule. And I'm wondering how much the Donovan Mitchell absence with the groin injury helped him there, where we started to see him bringing the ball up even more 
after rebounds. He's hit these, you know, he's shooting uh, over his last like 20 games, like 46% on fadeaway jumpers. We've seen him hit some floaters. I like that. The shot isn't there yet, but I like that he's just averaging over a three-point attempt per game, that he's willing to explore that. We've seen him make some nice passes in tight space, not just as like, oh, let's give him the ball at the elbows, but like he's putting the ball on the floor, face-ups and making those passes. I also like that. I think he had mentioned this in an interview that some players need to be the guy on offense and he's not someone who needs to be the guy and he knows how to play within a larger ecosystem. When you look at uh, the manner in which he moves off the ball and like the, the Cavs don't always have pristine spacing in the half court and he's just still able to navigate that. And it's not just going in for putbacks. It's like, it's coming in from the baseline or it's navigating around like a, an action that isn't even involving him and being able to get through bodies that way. So I don't know what his apex looks like on offense, but that's almost encouraging to me at this point because we don't have to shoebox him in to a play finisher role. Like this is someone who I think could, could, I just want to, could have a higher offensive ceiling than Bam Adebayo while still playing with Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell. And that is just kind of a, if you think about it, it's like a blasphemous thing to say, but it's really not when you go back and watch him. And so I think what will be key is that you want to see him have more of a consistent jumper. If he's going to take a three point attempt per game, like you want to see him get closer to league average there. But for now it's just like, my God, like th- this is just someone who is, he still has to me. And I don't, he, I wouldn't predict this. It's just, you should bet against the field. This, but like, this is someone who very much looks like he has a best player in the league package of skills because of the impact that he can have defensively. Yeah, I, I, I would echo all that. I think, I think like it is difficult. He is a weirdly difficult player to evaluate. And I sort of get it if you're looking from afar and you're just looking at points, rebounds, assists, you know, field goal, like it all looks pretty similar to last year. Um, He's playing a little more, but I think, I guess I would look at it like, yeah, you got to watch the games. I hate using that as like a, as a cop out, but it just, he does I'm just- out already watch the games. No, yeah. I'm Fuck that. <laughs> he- he does just pop off the screen, right? Like he cut, he's so fast and he moves so well and he covered, this is all just like scouting mumbo jumbo. It's not, it's not, there's no numbers. I mean, probably there are numbers attached to it with like advanced tracking stuff, but like the way that he covers ground, the way that he changes direction for a player, his size with his wingspan, it's just like, it's undeniable. And, and if that doesn't do it for you, just think about like how many 21 year olds are there, that their teams say we must have this guy on the floor at the end of close games because of defense, like 21, like that just, that's basically unheard of. Like rookies, he's not a rookie, but rookies are basically always bad defensively. And he was good. And now, you know, in his second year, I think he's better. Um, And I think it just excluding all the, some of the points that, that Muckle Mason is talking about, like, well, some of these passes look great. You know, he's just looking more comfortable, all true. Um, but I just go all the way back to like, he's 21 and he's one of the best defensive players in the world today, right now. And that's the thing that always takes forever. Like, I just think if, if he stays at this level offensively, he's still just an insanely valuable piece that because he doesn't need the ball all the time fits on any really good team. Like there's nothing like other than spacing, I guess there's nothing that you sort of wish Oh, if he could only do this, he could have a big role, you know, or he he could be this corner. He is a cornerstone piece. And and that's while acknowledging some of the stuff that he doesn't do that well yet. So uh, my take on Evan Mobley's year two development is that it is uh, right where it needs to be for him to be 
one of the best big guys in the league for the next 10 years, basically. Do you want to take us to the first round pick question? Sure. Let's do that. Uh, so this is from Kilhaus. I've, I've heard arguments going both ways on this. Do you think teams value very distant picks more or less, I guess, relative to, to the past or just in general? For instance, let's say the Lakers have their first round pick in 25, 27, 29. You can take one of them. Which one do you want? In a vacuum, you want the later one or at least the, the mid-end later one. So if it's between 27 and 29, I argue that 27 was more valuable for me because 2029 is so far into the distance that it gives them time to stumble into a free agent signing or to yeah. figure things out. What I think complicates this is that it depends on the team too. Like if it's the Lakers teams just might not value distant first round picks because they'll bet on them again, falling ass backwards into an elite player somehow via free agency. These front offices that are making the trade for picks, most of the time do not have the job security to prioritize that 2029, 2027 first round pick coming back as the meat and potatoes of the deal. Danny Ainge can do that in Utah. He is the, not even the, just the job security, but just the experience and the wherewithal. If Sam Presti wanted to do that, he could do that. Even look at what happened in Brooklyn, though, with the Kyrie Irving trade. Like, you still got Dorian Finney-Smith and Spencer Dinwiddie. There needs to be an immediacy there for a lot of front offices, which is why I think most would either prefer getting first-round picks sooner or getting players. And I think the key there is you want to get something else that's attached to the distant first-round picks to say, this is our immediate return versus we're playing the longer game here. But hey... I know that ownership needs to see something that's more instant. And then from a selfish perspective, like I'm probably not going to be the one that's using this first round pick, whether it's a trade asset or actually drafting and developing the guy. When you're actually looking at more value, my guess would be it's the later first round picks. That is very much a guess though, because we're not really at a point just yet where we've seen, you know, look at all these distant first round picks that have been thrown around in recent years. They just haven't started conveying yet. There's like Brooklyn's going to be an interesting example with Houston because that wasn't really too distant. Like their first round picks, top four protection. No, wait, that's Houston's to uh, OKC. But you're looking at like Brooklyn's picks going to uh, the Rockets over the next three years, basically. Um, so like that is even a unique circumstance. Uh, so I, I do think in my mind, it's yeah, well, you get those first round picks because maybe the team is bad by then. There's no guarantee they're bad. And you're you're still playing two crapshoots, which is, that team is going to be bad by 2027 or 2029. And then we're going to hit on the draft while they're bad. Yeah. And I, I think as the Clippers put even more, like as those later picks start to convey, even as I don't even know what the Rockets are like, theirs are going to start to convey with top four protection of OKC. But as we see more of the, like the Cleveland picks going to Utah, the Minnesota picks going to Utah, we'll have a better idea of what's actually more valuable. As of right now, though, like the two have been so inextricably linked when you're looking at these deals and saying you're not just getting a distant first round pick, you got other stuff. It's immediate. Mm -hmm. In most of these cases, it's immediate picks. It's immediate players. But I do think if you broke it down to let's even go the Danny Ainge route with Cleveland and Minnesota in the Utah negotiations, I do think that they would have prioritized. Like, let's frame it this way. I think Utah would have preferred Jaden McDaniels over distant first round picks. I think they definitely did. Yeah. yeah. And so, Minnesota didn't. So I do think that teams value the immediate equity more where 
even if even if you think that first round pick is going to be crappy, at least it's something that you someone you could bring in or a trade chip you can trade because another team will be interested in. Or when it's an actual younger player who's still unknown but more of a known quantity than draft pick that's going to a draft pick that's going to convey almost a decade from now. I think when push comes to shove, teams value that more. I will say though, logistically, it feels like the distant first round picks should be the more valuable assets. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's like, well, you made me think, first of all, it is clear that the young player on a rookie scale deal, that's already pretty good and is projectable is clearly more valuable than a first round pick, a distant one, because like there's, I mean, and it makes sense logically, right? It's like, you can sell, this is a human, like, Hey, fan base, this is a guy (laughs) that you can follow and like invest in and like and root for. And he's pretty good. And we think he's going to get better. That's way easier of a just from a like marketing standpoint than we have Team X's 2029 first round pick. Like most fans, I think the vast majority of fans, like don't, that's like a 2029 first round pick. Who cares? Like I'm going to watch six more seasons of this team before I can get excited about that. But the other thing is, we didn't really have to contend with the value of distant first rounders nearly as often as we do now because this just, this whole trading your entire draft is kind of new. I mean, it, you know, you can go back to like the original Celtics Nets trade with, you know, Darren Williams and Kevin Garnett and, and everybody there, but like, uh, no, I wasn't there. Anyway, Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, that, that deal. Um, but before that, it wasn't like a thing to trade your entire draft, or at least I don't remember it being so common. So I think the, the short answer is like, teams are still kind of trying to figure out what these distant first rounders are worth. I think it varies. It's, it's specific to each situation. Like, and usually if you're getting back at 2029 first, it's coming with a bunch of other stuff and it's because you're giving up a superstar. So you have a rough idea of how you might want to time the picks you're getting back because you know, when the superstars contract is up and, and you know, you're in a position to sort of make an informed decision on, do we want 25 or 27 or 29 or whatever? But ultimately, I think we don't know. We like, we, I think it, de- it depends on the team. And I think it depends on how much of a change we're going to see, like starting at this most recent deadline, because the value of firsts, even in February, seemed to be different than it was in June and July, which is kind of a wild thing. So it's very much like up in the air right now. Let's move on to this question from uh, Brian C. Maybe not a mailbag question, but what teams? What's that? Beg to differ. Yes, it is. What teams should do what the Nets or Jazz have done this this past offseason? Uh, nice to hear what players they should trade in ballpark, what they receive. Not specific, but is Cat worth three unprotected first and a Mikael level player? Then run down what the team would look like. I think the T Wolves need to trade everything besides Edwards. Apologize for destroying the team with the Rudy trade and beg him for. One more chance. Also think Hawks, Bulls, and Raptors need to consider before it's too late. Yeah, so there's a lot there. Um, I think just as a starting point, we've hit on this already, um, which team should do what the Nets or Jazz have done, um, which is, I mean, that's kind of different situations because the Jazz got out in front of it and the Nets kind of reacted. Um, but the idea of kind of stripping it down, Chicago, obviously, I think we agree. It's like a little too late. They should have, this, this is a, a rebuild that should have started a couple years ago. Washington's in that group. I'm kind of tempted to say Portland just because they're Ooh. hovering around 500 again. And, you know, Jeremy Grant, I think is probably going to resign, but maybe not. And then if he doesn't like what, you know, where are you? 
and is it a problem that he seems to matter that much, even though he hasn't really, he's played well, but it hasn't, you know, moved the needle a ton for Portland. They're, they're not a contender. Um, so I might want to throw them in there. Um, and they may just be put to that decision anyway, if Damian Lillard ever relents and says like, I'd like to try a, a another flavor at some point before my career is <laughs> over. Um, but yeah, so those are my teams. I don't know if before we move on, if you have anybody to add to that group that it's just sort of like, it's time to change it up. Basically is, is what the question seems to be asking. Get a bunch of picks. If you can, the bulls and wizards would be mine. And I think that you're probably more equipped to do so as the bulls, just because you have Kyle Kuzma and Christos Porzingis are both free agents this year in Washington. And so I guess you could orchestrate sign and trades for them. That's how you recoup some of your value, but you would get value for DeRozan on an expiring contract. I think you would get two first round picks for, for Zach Levine. Uh, what would you get for Alex Caruso? That's probably another first round pick right there. So I think they would be the Timberwolves or the, the Timberwolves and the Hawks though, seem like the only teams that have the player who could fall into this discussion and have the player that could command like that type of massive return because we're looking at Trey young, which I just, I, if I'm the Hawks, I wouldn't blow it up just yet. There's like definite flaws there, but it doesn't seem to be as bad as reports led us to believe initially. If he requests for out, that's when you move him. But if he's not requesting for out, I'm not moving him. That's the stance we always took. Right. Uh, but for Minnesota specifically, they have the cat level player. And I do to not to steal the second part of the question, from you, but I do think he would probably get you three unprotected first. I don't know. I'm a Kale level player is like a top 50 player in the NBA. I guess the jazz, they get Larry marketing for Rudy Gobert, but that was more and, and Walker Kessler. But I don't know. It's I do. Would, so over under on picks. So that's the question. So that's cat is so interesting because my first thought was like, it seems like he should get you two or three first. Right. I think. Um, but, it, but I think we'd agree that he's not at the peak of his value right now, like far from it. Right. Um, and it's not just because of the contract, which is just massive. Five other, years and $254 million remaining. Like that's huge. But I mean, he's young enough to where that should be fine in theory, but like, you know, it's tough to judge this season because he's been hurt for so much of it, but you know, it didn't go great early with, with Gobert and like, he's got these playoff no shows and the fact that they even felt they had to give all this up for Gobert because towns cannot anchor a defense at center, which is a huge problem. Um, I don't know. I, I think three first would be the top. Like you could, if, if it were two and like, a and say, just, let's just say bridges, he's not on the table, but as a hypothetical, if you told me right now, if I'm the wolves that I could trade cat for bridges, obviously the money doesn't work. There's all these other things and two unprotected first. I think I might do it just because I'm not sure that as we continue, like also the alternative is maybe once he's back and healthy, uh, and Conley's running the show, everything looks better in Minnesota and he is back closer to peak of his value. But like the inability to anchor a defense as center is such a huge deal to me and the playoff stuff. And I, so, yeah, I don't know if it's three and a player like bridges, that would be phenomenal. Um, but I don't know if that's totally realistic. Just, just the, the town's town stock is not at its all time high right now. I'll just put it that way. So you would bet against let's frame it as three picks plus, a very impactful player, not because the jazz got an all-star repair trade, which is just bonkers to, to reflect upon. But you think three picks and a player like a really like value. You look at that and said, Oh, other teams really wanted that player. Like we did with Mikhail bridges or even Dorian Finney Smith. 
I mean, if it's someone on Finney Smith's level, then it's got to be three picks if I'm Minnesota. Like, cause he's just not okay. the same as Bridges. But, but I mean, that's, the, I mean, how many teams out there are saying we're, we're going to make town? Cause if you're giving up that many picks and a good player, you're basically saying Towns is a foundational piece. Like he's, if not the guy, he's, you know, 1A because we're going to pay him like, you know, option one. So I don't know how many teams there are out there that are like, we're going to give all that up for him. I'm just trying would to, you, it only takes one. That's the thing we always say, but still. Would you do Tyler Hero in picks for Carl Anthony Towns if you're Miami? If I'm Well, I mean, is Towns going to survive in Miami? Um, <laughs> I mean, Jimmy Butler's there. Oh, yeah, wow, I forgot. That's not going to work. Jimmy, Jimmy Butler will not Butler uh, but that's a pro like, it's such a, that's like a whispered thing. And Oh, towns is soft or whatever people seem to think, but like, I don't know, you don't, they don't say that about everybody. I think it's a real, like, it's a data point that like some guys whose competitiveness we respect are out on towns as like, as competitors, that, that is like a thing I would consider. So in answer to your question, I think if I'm the heat and Butler signed <laughs> off on it, I probably would do that just because. You know, Hero's a really good sixth man, I think, and maybe a, a decent starter. Uh, Towns, I guess, the upside and the way – I mean, maybe he works with Autobio too, by the way. Maybe Autobio is think, the – I think that pairing works, by the way, which yeah. is why I suggest it. But it's as you were talking about it, what's interesting is that I don't see the team anymore that would even just be dying to – this is Conley Towns, a very good basketball player. I want to make that clear. Yeah. He's one of right. – he's a generational offensive talent. But it's like, would the Knicks even do the like, – are they going to look at it and say, like, we're good with Mitchell Robinson and Julius Randle at this point in the front court? I'm not saying they should, but like, would they look at it and think that way? Because they were the team that's just like, oh, they'll give up everything. They didn't do it for Donovan Mitchell. Are they going to do it for Carl Anthony Towns? Well, it's a weird thing that, like, just to talk about Mobley, for example. Like, if you have Evan Mobley, in contrast, on your team, you're not really having to, like, well, okay, now we need this here, and we need this position to be able to do this to accommodate for what Mobley can't do. That's not really a thing, but with Towns, we saw the Wolves exemplified it. Oh, we got to worry about this. We have, we need interior defense. We, you know, we need certain things. And it's like, if you're a super max guy, there really shouldn't be a situation where the team that gets you is then having to make subsequent moves and altering its style or whatever to accommodate you for like, for negative reasons. Like I get it. If you, you know, need to do other stuff for other superstars but like that's just kind of a weird he's a weird uh like trade value guy to pay surprisingly because minnesota obviously thought he was worth just like no questions asked full max the moral of this story was though i think the bulls are the team that's most likely to just strip it down and start a new next i think that's my guess hopefully hopefully all right i gotta get us to uh, Darkwing Duck, I generally don't like to post maybe questions about my favorite team but we have a jazz question um so Basically, now that Conley's gone, the longest tenured jazz player is Jordan Clarkson. Uh, and then after that, it's Udoka Azubuki. And you, you're forgiven if you're uh, not sure who he is. Um, <laughs> so basically, uh, the question is, who do you think will be the longest tenured jazz man to start next season? The current list, so Clarkson's three and a half years, Azubuki three, Rudy Gay two. And then we're into the Leandro Bomaros, uh, Kessler like what who's so what 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 do you say here who's going to be uh the like the standard bearer of the jazz franchise in terms of longevity next year i think it's going to be clarkson i think that they, he's there you're thinking he's going to be there i'm i think that they will resign him it's not him it's going to be kessler like they're just it, just everybody's i guess i'm betting on technically bolermo still be there so i'm just going to go it's not really a limb i think that if you weren't 
if you're going to let him walk in free agency, you should have traded him. Yeah. Maybe there's sign and trade scenarios I'm not thinking about at the moment, but the fact that they didn't move him now leads me to believe that he will be there next season. Yeah, I think I agree with that. It's an interesting question. I mean, I'd be curious how many other teams have a situation like that where the longest tenured guy is just, you know, it feels like he was traded there like not that long ago. Um, but yeah, it's probably Clarkson. I do think it was not I, him who would be your pick. I don't know. Can they get rid of Rudy Gay? <laughs> like, is he going to just be I there? Just feel, I could see them like stretching and waving him or something yeah. at that point. Cause it's the final year or it's an expiring contract. They move. Yeah. I feel like my pick might just be cause who's tripping over themselves. I, you could, but you, as Utah, you don't need to grease the wheels of this deal, but who, and first of all, uh, I, like, is it even going to be, it wouldn't be as because he's coming off the books after this year. Yeah. So like, you're not, you're not bringing him back. Right. And I guess even Palermo is expiring, isn't he? Unless I'm reading this wrong. So I thought he had another year left on his deal. So I would say that they would probably get rid of those two and that they would wave and stretch Rudy Gay or find a taker and that it would just be Walker Kessler at that point. <laughs> I love it. Uh, let's see. I got another one for you. I think. Well, I have a question for you that's going to be tied. We're about to talk a lot about the Phoenix Suns. All right, let's hit it. This is, it's dated a little bit, but did the Phoenix Suns give up too much for Kevin Durant? I don't think so. Um, I think, and the main reason for that is Kevin Durant is basically, you know, the best player that's been traded in like, I don't know how long, a really long time. So um, the fact that. I mean, if he's one of like the 15 greatest players of all time, you have to go back to like, well, how many of the 14 in front of him were just traded? You got to go pretty far. Uh, So, yeah, I think, I mean, it's a lot, but you know, you compare it to the Mitchell package and the Gobert package, or even like the, I don't know, Drew holiday package or Anthony Davis package. Like there's a pretty compelling case that Durant's just better than all those guys. Uh, so it just costs what it costs and four firsts and, you know, one really good play. Yeah. It's a lot. It is a lot, but now I think, don't you feel better about the sun's chances to win the West than you did before the trade? I mean, just significantly, I mean, I do, uh, so yeah, I, I don't think it's too much. I think it's, a, it's a ton, but it's not too much. It's just, that's, that's what it takes. Even if you're not really the problem, uh, I think you could talk about this is, um, there wasn't a ton of competition to drive up the price. It was sort of like, they just did it to themselves almost. And you would, that was my issue is that he only wanted to go to Phoenix and he asked for the next to keep it quiet, which they did. And they sent him to Phoenix, but Phoenix was negotiating against themselves now, Durant could have become disenchanted and said, well, Phoenix didn't go and get me. Maybe I have eyes for Miami or Golden State over the offseason. You also increase your chances of them just sending Kevin Durant wherever, which I don't think they would have done. Maybe if the package was good enough, if Toronto or New Orleans came in and offered the moon, you always run the risk of that. And you were essentially, I guess, paying a premium for that like pre-negotiating window. You had ex- exclusivity, which you couldn't have guaranteed over the offseason. But I'm just like, you bent over to the, and I'm not saying that they should have been able to keep Mikhail Bridges. That would have been the ideal. I would have included more swaps. Like yeah. that would have been, that well, that was your only card to play. If it was like DeAndre and additional swaps, really. I'm saying like you had to throw in Jay Crowder at the last minute, who you could have rerouted for extra pick equity. Like just you know what I mean? And so if just felt like they went one stone too far. I think people though, in general, are underselling the risk of this trade because Kevin Durant is age 34. Hasn't played a full season in basically a half decade. Chris Paul is going on 38. And DeAndre Ayton has played really well lately, but he's just been all over the place in part because 
the Suns, I would say, mishandled his extension talks. Then the whole restricted free agency drama. Now we're just supposed to expect that he'll be okay because he was shopped very openly in Kevin Durant trade talks. There's the element of, okay, yeah, Kevin Durant. It's Kevin Durant. Like, it's it's Kevin right. fucking Durant. Sometimes the argument just stops there. Like, that, right. that, that's what it is. And again, he's been playing really well. He's tailor-made to fit with these three stars. But does he want to fit with these three stars? How does it impact his defense? I would argue that he might be the most important defensive player in the NBA right now, or at least in the playoffs, when you're just looking at how this team is structured. You bankrupted your two-way wing depth, which I guess wasn't really like super deep to begin with, If but like because Jay Crowder was gone already, yeah. but that was part of it. Mikael Bridges gone. Cam Johnson, not a wing, but more of a two-way player than I think people gave him credit for. So like there are real holes now, and you've traded your future draft. So if this doesn't work out... You're just saying, okay, well, Devin Booker and DeAndre will be good enough to to float us. I don't know if that's the case. I would have made the trade. I want to make that clear. I would have made the trade. I don't under. I don't think that the Nets would have walked away from the table over Jay Crowder, though. I don't think that would have been the. And I, but then it's like, well, should Phoenix have? But no, Phoenix conceded the swaps, the picks, all unprotected, and Mikael Bridges and like the Nets negotiated everything. And I know they have Kevin Durant, but they did this while Kevin Durant was sidelined with an MCL injury. And you, they're already, there's rumors of like, well, would they pair Kyrie in Phoenix? Like, don't even, please just don't even get me started. So it's just like, what potential baggage are you taking on or issues? Or are you also bringing into your locker room by acquiring Kevin Durant? Well, I don't, I'm not saying he's a cancer. I'm also just, I'm over the, oh, he just loves basketball so much. We need to bow at the altar of Kevin Durant there. I would have made the trade, but I just think that it was riskier and more impulsive based off the reporting that we know about how Matt Ishbia handled it. Then like it it very much felt like new ownership coming into Minnesota. Let's make the splash to get Rudy Gobert, except that it was Kevin Durant, who's one of the best players of all time and still in his prime. But like, he's always, he's always dealing with these lower body injuries now. I think I think he's going to age well. I don't know how like integral to the conversation that is, but I, that's hard to say with all the time he's missed over the last several years. Um, I think it, like when healthy, I think his game will be like pretty close to you know he'll look really good when he's on the floor. I think going forward, and for the Suns, like this is very much a trade you make where you're just hoping that the time that he's on the floor happens to be you know April to June, and you just need to catch one of those over the next you know three years basically, and you've got a shot. Um, I think too, and you mentioned it, the Nets probably had a good sense of we can hold really firm because it does seem like this, the new ownership group is like, they're calling us back, you know, at the 11th hour after we've basically hit an impasse, it suggests desperation. And the Nets, I think were smart to just say, yeah, this, I mean, yeah, he demanded a trade and yet we still have all the leverage somehow even though there's actually no competitive offers, like that's kind of amazing, but the Nets played it right. Or as, as well as you could play that situation, I think. Um, yeah, and I guess really at the core of it, it's like, it's a trade you made as the Suns because you think it's going to win you a title. And like, probably that won't be right because only one team ever gets to win it every year. But I do think it raised their chances enough to just be like, yeah, we got all these other problems, depth, health. You know, we don't have a draft for a while screw it. Like let's, we, we won 64 last year. We've been to the finals. Let's like, let's do it. I think it's, it's just the kind of like swing you make when things are teetering maybe a little bit because of Chris Paul's age and the eight and stuff to really just like, this might be, we have to do it now because tomorrow's not promised, you know? The next part of this question, did you want to take us to that? 
Yeah. Okay. So let's see. We have this is from Usher uh, in the summer. I had a question. I want to make sure I'm not going to repeat what we just did. Um, okay. I'll just read it. Uh, in the summer, I asked a question uh, regarding whether KD getting his trade request with three years on his deal will affect the future CBA. Does this have any effect since he played for half a season, was compliant with the Nets, uh, didn't sit out until Irving asked out? Or do you think him still getting his wishes will have downstream consequences on the CBA? It's kind of a player empowerment uh, question, I guess, basically. I don't think it's going to have any consequences. I think in large part because they have other priorities where it's teams specifically are going to be more prioritized. Like, can we change the extension rules so that someone like OG Ananobi doesn't have to hit free agency or someone like Jalen Brown doesn't have to hit free agency if they're willing to sign an extension. I think they're more worried about that. Also in the case of the Nets and Kevin Durant, they probably still could have just had both these dudes if they paid Kyrie Irving. And so this was their choice to some extent. And so Kevin Durant already did sign an extension too. So you actually weren't obligated to trade him. His leverage, if we really think Kevin Durant loves basketball that much and would have continued to play. You didn't have to trade him. So this was not that this went down on the Nets' terms, but they had more alternatives rather than superstar X going and boxing him into a corner by saying, I want out. I mean, Kevin Durant did that, but it wasn't like he was in the final. This wasn't Anthony Davis circa New Orleans a few years ago. And so I just don't, I can't imagine it being an impact in talk. I'm sure we'll just come up, but what was, what was the actual preventative measure here for Brooklyn? And also what are, what were they fighting to keep? They didn't want Kyrie Irving. And so that was just, that became eminently clear. So I would think like, if we get to a point where this is becoming more common among non top 10 superstars, exactly. then yes, maybe we'll, where it's like, Oh, it matters. Jalen Noel requested a trade and we need to oblige. Like if we get into where his trade or Furkan Korkmaz requested a trade with four years left on his deal. If it gets to that level. Yeah. But like, what is the recourse even going to be? You can't, like you're just going to be punitive to players who are still under contracts for requesting trades. Again, their teams don't have to move them. And I just think it would, it would be more of a red alarm fire if this wasn't Kevin Durant. Like I'm trying to think of like a, just a different level of like if Mikhail Bridges, for example, gone to Phoenix and said, I want out, I'm done with this. Like, you know, Chris Paul made me run wind sprints or something. And just, I'm not just, so I, I fail to see if it will have, an impact. I thought over the summer, I think more impulsively, my answer might've been different. I don't know what I answered then assuming I answered this at all, but just sort of stepping back and looking at it. I just don't think it's going to be addressed at all in the next CBA. I think Duran is just too much of an outlier. And like, you know, we just talked about it. He was one of the best players of all time. Like, yeah, I guess if a player with that level of clout makes a trade request with so much time left on his deal, then, you know, that's just, that's just what it is. It's not like, I think if you're talking about changing rules or changing the collective bargaining agreement to, to address this somehow, it would have to be more widespread or happening with players that weren't at Durant's level, which is true for like basically everybody. So yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't see major change. Another, just one more Suns related thing, basically asking about uh, the, the backcourt depth uh, guards and playmaking for Phoenix, you know, campaign has been out. I think he's played two games since the middle of December. Um, and Landry Shamit's out uh, as well. So Usher's just curious, like, do you think this is a problem that can be solved with Devin Booker kind of leading bench lineups as the point guard, or is there, that they need to go get somebody like what, or, or how big of an issue is a playmaking position on a team that has Booker Durant and Chris Paul that you can throw out there in some combination? I, so I'm a big fan of Devin Booker at point guard lineups. I've advocated for them for multiple seasons for them to basically since Chris Paul came that they should lean on them more. We saw them lean on them more 
in that game against the Kings, actually. And I believe when I looked, the lineups were a net negative or net even in those minutes. You don't need them to be much better than a slight mm-hmm. net negative or net even. I'll also point out the sample size is incredibly small. Uh, but when Phoenix plays with Devin Booker at point guard this season, 95 possessions, a net rating of 24. And so like, yeah, there's a difference because Mikael Bridges was a part of a lot of those lineups and now he's gone. And so is, so is Cam Johnson. But I think just between like, could you go the Devin Booker and like a fuck ton of defense route or just tie those minutes to DeAndre Ayton as well. But I think that is the route to go. And there's just the buyout market. I don't know what it's going to yield. I would say like, I think that's why we've seen people are mentioning, oh, why isn't Derek Rose and the Knicks talking a buyout? Well, two things. He has a team option for next year. And like, if they want to facilitate a trade, like he can wind up getting quite a bit of money. Yep. So why punt on that? But also who is signing him when also Shams is reporting that Russell Westbrook can't find a destination. There's no clear spot for John Wall. Maybe some teams prefer Derek Rose, whatever. Like I, I would argue I probably wouldn't at this point. I just haven't seen enough from him this season. So, like, I don't know what the buyout market is going to get you. What's what's weird is that I know that Kevin Durant and Chris Paul hate him. Patrick Beverly would kind of make sense for this roster. Yeah. But he's also not – that's more from a defensive perspective, and I know that he is not the defender he once was. I would roll with the Devin Booker at point guard lineups and then just hope that, you know, campaign gets healthy and that we can chill on these Saban Lee minutes eventually. But the campaign stuff is just very – it's sort of flown under the radar, I think, because you were dealing with injuries to Devin Booker. Chris Paul was up and down for so long. And then you had the backdrop of like, well, what's going on with Aiton and then all these trade talks, but like him just being out for so long is pretty big. And I think even Landry Shamit missing some time, you do have Terrence Ross now, but I think that alleviates not the playmaking, but just it makes Devin Booker at point guard lineups even more palatable to me, but you can go so many different ways because Devin Booker is so good. And I think that's also a way to ensure, I don't think he cares. He doesn't strike me as that type of player who cares about his numbers. That's also kind of the way to ensure that his stats stay juiced while he's seeding at least let's say shot attempts or t- just touches to Kevin Durant. We know Kevin Durant can play off the ball. I would very much explore this, especially while campaigns out. And it does. If look, if I'm going to read into the one game that I've seen from this team since the trade, which was the Kings game, I'm going to say that, yeah, they are going to explore that. And I, I think it's the right surprise, surprise. He who has campaigned for these lineups uh, <laughs> campaigns. How do you feel about, how about that? Uh, who is, who has advocated for these lineups for the past, like two or three years is in support of it. How big of a shock is that? Well, I think uh, it's not like the position that the Suns are in right now because they are in a win now situation. But as we alluded to, there is this sort of downstream scenario where suddenly your core is Booker and Aiton and like, don't know what else probably. So it's not the worst thing for Booker to just, yeah, you're going to be on the ball way more now because there is a reasonable possibility that in the future it's you, you being on the ball all the time, while not ideal could just be a very regular thing. You know, j- just, you may be the primary facilitator uh, if, if we don't, or if we just prioritize other things from the point guard spot going forward, like, yeah, campaign being hurt matters if, for the regular season. But I think if you have Booker and Paul and hopefully Durant, like the playoffs, like Payne's role is going to be pretty small. I, I think unless he's just running really hot, it's just not going to be that big a factor. So you may as well just have Booker kind of, I don't know, get reps, just get comfortable both for now and, and for, you know, a few years from now when the team looks a lot different. That was it. This was fun. Do you want to take us out? Yeah. Thanks everyone for their questions, by the way. Everybody. Yes. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on our socials, join our discord. Uh, so you can provide questions here and just generally interact with what has become a pretty awesome community of people that really like basketball and like to talk about it in intelligent ways. 
everybody's nice to each other. That's cool. You don't see a lot of that on the interwebs. Uh, so yeah, check us out. Uh, thanks for uh, uh, listening to us here. Remember to subscribe to us wherever you uh, get your podcasts. And as always, we will uh, shout out the one and only Frank Milikina and issue another sincere apology to Jared Allen.